the Jews, verse 31, picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said to you, you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Though you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? Verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained and many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I ask for your help to be able to know and understand what does it mean that the Father is in Christ and Christ is in the Father, that you, Jesus, and the Father are one. Lord, would you correct our misunderstandings of who you are? We want to see you in all your beauty and all your glory. And God, we want to ask humbly that you would correct anything in us. Anything that is not set rightly in place, would you set it in place so that we might be healed, that we might experience the refreshment that comes from being in your presence, from turning from the things that we thought could save us to turning to the only one who can actually save. So Father, all things this morning we want to be done unto you through the work of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's for you that we open our ears and we open our hearts. We ask, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. May the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to begin by asking you to consider what could you say that would induce a crowd in a moment to pick up stones to kill you right there on the spot? What kind of heinous crime do you think must be committed for a crowd to turn into a mob ready to execute judgment on the spot? That's the scene we enter into. It's tense. It's tense in the 10th degree. Last week, there was one question before us. The question that the Jews asked Jesus, are you the Christ? And this morning, we see that Jesus, he has answered their question in verse 30. He said, I and the Father are one. And so one question remains. And men have stones in their hands awaiting the answer. Jesus, 
are you saying you're God? We're going to walk through the text this morning under the following headings. Verse 30 to 33, the trial. Verse 34 to 36, the defense. Verse 37 to 38, the appeal. Verse 39 to 42, the verdict. Let's look at first the trial. Verses 30 to 33, read with me. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus begins his answer uh, by saying, I and the Father are one. Let me remind you, we talked about it last week. What does it mean that Jesus and the Father are one? Well, we can say the following things, that they have one will. Jesus does all that he sees the Father doing. All the works the Father gives him to do, that's what he does. They have one will and their one will is their one mission. That is to save all the ransomed sinners of God and he's not gonna fail in any of that. He's not gonna lose one of his sheep. He's going to take sheep, both from the Jews and from sheep that aren't of that fold, the Gentiles, many of us today. Jesus and the Father are one. They have one will. They have one mission. But that is not all. There is something underlying their one will and their one mission. And that is that they are of one essence. That is to say that they share in common full eternal divinity. Jesus is God and the Father is God. It is not to say that the Father is the Son, therefore, but that both of them are God. What's really interesting about this statement is the I and the Father are one. You might think that means that Jesus just equals the Father, but that's not true. It's something that we aren't able to see in our English translation, but some of you guys know this. In other languages, nouns have, uh, nouns can come in what's called a gender. So it's either male, female, or neuter. In Greek, you have those three options. You know this in Spanish, if it ends with an O, it's male often. If it ends with an A, uh, it is female. In the Greek, what's interesting is father and son are both masculine. But where it says one, that word one is given to us in the neuter. It's saying not that the father and the son are equal to each other in terms of this is that, but they are both of the same thing. They are both divine. Now, this is what kicked off the Jews' hatred for Jesus. It started actually in chapter 5, verse 18. This conflict between the Jews and Jesus has been going on for about five chapters. In chapter 5, verse 18, we find the following. It says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, 
but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And we need to see that the Jews didn't misunderstand that Jesus was claiming equality with God. They misunderstand, misunderstood all the implications of what that meant. But they heard those statements. And so they picked up stones. Now, why did they pick up stones? Well, because they knew the Torah. They knew their law. And it says in Leviticus 24, verse 16, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. So they pick up their stones in verse 31. And the accusation is implicit. It's there for everyone to see. You committed blasphemy. It's as if they're saying, you're one with the father. Well, then we're judge, jury, executioner. We're all in one. If you want to say you're one with the Father, we're all in one. We'll do this right now. You're dying here. Jesus is on trial. And I want to ask you, in this moment, we can read these words and escape uh, the truth of what's actually happening here. Okay, because the truth is this. Imagine yourself here, gun to your head, a knife to your throat. What do you say in that moment? What do you say when your death seems imminent? Where it seems whatever words come out of your mouth determine whether you live or die. Well, Jesus answers them in verse 32. Look at the majesty of the calm of Jesus in this moment. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? So Jesus' first defense is his works, his good works. The word there could even be translated, the word good could even be translated beautiful. You've seen my many beautiful works that are from the Father. Which of those do you want to stone me for? Jesus, with his with his death on the, with his life on the line, death could be coming for him in this moment. He appeals to his miracles, his works, and really the whole testimony of his life. He says, okay, I see the stones in your hands. So which of my healings and my signs and my wonders and my miracles do you condemn me for? Can Can you imagine at this moment with your life on the line, appealing to your good works in life? Now, let's be honest with one another, okay? I'm not just trying to tear each one of us down. We've all done some good things in life. Everyone has done some good things of life. We're all made in the image of God, but Jesus, what he's doing right here is opening himself up to absolutely any charge that could possibly be brought against him. Any lie he ever told in this moment could be brought against him. Any foolish word he ever spoke 
could be brought against his character. But what we see is that as you examine Jesus, as you look at his works and his life, there is no fault that you will find in this man. You look at his feet. He never went anywhere he should not have gone. But he even walked on water. You look at his knees, which he never bowed to a false god. You look at his hands, with which he never did evil against another person, but he touched lepers and he healed them. And he took food and he blessed it and he multiplied it and he fed people. And you look at his tongue with which he only ever spoke truth in grace. And you look at his eyes with which he never lusted after a woman, but he, he saw women with love and respect and purity. And he saw people who were, who were in distress. He saw them and he had compassion on them. And you look at his mind and Jesus never even had a sinful thought. I've been watching the O.J. Simpson uh, docudrama and no comments on that trial itself. But one thing I've learned from the O.J. Simpson trial, rule number one of a defense attorney, you should never put a shady character on the witness stand. If you don't have utter faith in the person you're going to put on the witness stand, don't let them get up there. Don't put them there. But Jesus says, I put myself on the witness stand. I put my works on the witness stand because all of my works are actually from the father and he's my witness. Bring a charge against me if you have it. What do we do with this? Well, I want to ask, are you on the fence about Jesus? Like you, you've been coming and you, people are nice around here, maybe, but you're like, I don't know about him really. I like some things about him. Look, look at his works. Look at his person. Do you find any fault in this man? Read through the gospels. Have you ever seen anyone like Jesus? If you can't bring a charge against him, you must believe everything he says. And let's be honest, he makes ostentatious claims. He is claiming that he is God. One God. Not in the sense that everything in the universe is positive and good. But no, he is God. He is creator. And then there is creation. That every knee will bow to him. Or I want to ask you if you in your heart have accused God of doing you wrong in life. Just as Jesus only ever did good works, church, God has never, ever done anyone any wrong. 
That does not mean we always understand to the minute detail all of God's ways, but we know he is only ever good and not at the expense of his sovereignty, not at the expense of his power, that he is God almighty and he is God all good. But the Jews give an answer to him in verse 33. The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man, make yourself God. They say, it's not for your works that we're condemning you. Side note, because they can't, because there's nothing there. But they say, instead, for your words, for you are committing blasphemy. They say the blasphemy he commits is this, because you, Jesus, being a man, make yourself God. And here is the irony of all ironies. That the religious leaders are utterly blind to who Jesus is. Because you see, it is not that he, being a man, made himself God, but that he, the eternal second person of the Trinity, being eternal God, made himself a man. This is the mystery and the glory of the incarnation, which is the start of the hope of the gospel. John began talking about it in his prologue in John 1.1 and John 1.14, where he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So the word is eternal and the word is with God and the word is God. He is God and with God. So he's not just God. It's a second person who is fully equal to God. And in John 1.14, the unfathomable happens that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is to say that the word came into this world that the infinite took on finite, that God ultimately would come to save sinners. You see, Jesus is not a man become God, but Jesus is God in love, taking on human flesh to live a perfect human life, to die a death on our behalf, to raise to life again, all in order to save human sinners. That is who Jesus is. And yet they accuse Jesus of blasphemy and they are exactly wrong in their charge. They couldn't be more backwards. You being a man claimed to be God. No, he being God made himself man. This humbles us. But this is Jesus. And so now Jesus gives his defense. Look with me at the defense he gives in verse 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him, 
whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. So let's talk about Jesus's defense. Now there's two things I want us to see within these verses. The first is Jesus's view of scripture. And the second is, okay, now what exactly is Jesus doing with this scripture here? So let's take first Jesus's view of the scripture. Now it's, it's a right question to ask, what is the Christian's view of the Bible? What is our opinion? What is our doctrine? What is the truth we believe about this book? Many people assault this book. Many people say you can't believe it. Many people say you can take these parts, but not those parts. And so what do we say to all these questions? Well, a good starting point for us as followers of Christ is we should say, well, I want to know what is Jesus's view of the Bible? What does Jesus believe about the scriptures? Because we don't want a higher view than Jesus has. And we definitely don't want a lower view than Jesus has. But what do we want? We want his view of the Bible. We want to be like Christ. So you'll notice Jesus says, and it's almost a throwaway comment. In verse 35, uh, the second half of it, he, he, in quoting scripture and explaining what it means, he gives this parenthetical thought. He says, and scripture cannot be broken. So we're ta- he's talking with the Jews about scripture and they're agreeing on this common ground. We both know scripture cannot be broken. So what does that mean? Well, the Bible, according to Jesus, is unbreakable. It must be fulfilled. Every single dot and iota, the tiniest strokes of this book. And I want you to also recognize what is Jesus speaking of directly right here? He's speaking of all of the Old Testament. He's he's referencing a specific line, one line in one Psalm, Psalm 82. And he calls Psalm 82 the law that the Psalms are included in the law. He's talking about all the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament cannot be broken, but it must be fulfilled down to the dot and iota, as he says in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, heaven and earth must pass away, but my word won't pass away. Everything must be fulfilled in it. And notice he's applying that to just one line of one psalm in the book of Psalms. Jesus, don't you know that was just a song the Israelites sang? He says, scripture cannot be broken. This is God-ordained truth. And God cannot lie. What we can gain from this is this truth, that you can't pit Jesus against the Bible. Because what is Jesus's view of the Bible? That he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. That in his time of need, he appeals to holy scripture. You can't pit Jesus against the Bible because Jesus doesn't pit himself against the Bible. 
and think not only of what he said, but think of how throughout his life, Jesus clung to and used scripture. Think of when he was in the wilderness, facing the temptations of none other than Satan himself. What did Jesus say in response? He said, it is written and rebuked the devil with the word of God. In his greatest sermon he ever gave, he said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. With his very life on the line right here, what argument do you pull out when you're about to die? Jesus uses a scriptural argument. He says, Psalm 82, this line and the scripture can't be broken. That's what Jesus says. Hanging on the tree of Calvary. What did he say? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22. In post-resurrection, Jesus went on a walk. And what does Jesus want to talk about on the walk he goes on after he rose from the dead? Well, in Luke 24, it says, beginning with the law and the prophets, he explained how everything in this book pointed to him and concerned him. That all of scripture was about him. And I just have the deep, deep privilege of being in a church of people who love the word of God. And and my hope is that we would just continue to grow in our love for the word of God. That we would continue to be like Christ and that we would know our Bibles. That we would be like John Bunyan. Do you know who John Bunyan is? He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, one of the best-selling books of all time. But you might not know, John Bunyan at his time, he was just, his profession was a tinker in addition to being a preacher. What's a tinker? Well, it seems that he would fix pots and pans, a lowly profession. He was a tinker and he went in and out of jail because he didn't preach in the state established church of the time. And they said, if you don't preach in our way, get out of our church. He said, well, I'm gonna preach Christ, so I've got to do that. And so they would put him in jail and he would go in and out of jail. Charles Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, that he was, his blood was bibbling. Charles Spurgeon made up a word to talk about John Bunyan. It's kind of like gasoline, but it's bibbling. He said, prick him anywhere and the guy bleeds out scripture. John Owen, who wrote uh, 23 volumes, including just seven volumes on the book of Hebrews and then 16 other volumes, okay? Who was... uh, who was an advisor to Oliver Cromwell. He was one of the most brilliant Puritan theologians of all time. His sentences are paragraphs. He's so hard to read. The guy in his footnotes just quotes Latin. I'm reading him and I go down to the footnotes. Oh, an explanation. And it takes me a few words to realize that's not even in a language I know. (laughs) What did he say of of John Bunyan? Well, he said, he said, as one king said, why do people go to hear that tinker preach? And John Owen said, I would give all the knowledge I have just to be able to preach like that tinker. What was the secret of John Bunyan? 
It was no secret. He just knew the word of God and he loved the word of God. And so I want to encourage you as we next year, 2021, uh, (laughs) we don't really know what's going to happen in 2021, but I have a good pitch. You can know that you could jump into the word of God and get on our Bible reading plan together as we read through the Bible with each other. But oh, that we'd be a people of this book that Jesus Christ loved. That is Jesus's view of the scripture, that scripture cannot be broken. But now we need to return to the immediate context and ask, okay, but what is Jesus doing with this scripture quotation? Let me read it one more time for us. Verse 34 through 36, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. That's the quotation. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and set into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. Okay, now this is an unusual argument, but follow with me because you're going to be able to understand it. The first thing we just need to know is he's not, Jesus isn't here arguing for positive proof of his divinity, okay? He's not using this verse to say, because this verse, I am divine. He already did that with his works. He appealed to his works. Look at those. They clearly prove that I'm divine. What he's doing right here, what he is doing is quoting Psalm 82 to show that people other than Yahweh have in the Bible been called gods, small g. So in that, in Psalm 82, human judges, most likely, they're being called gods because the true judge, God, appointed them to judge according to his law. And so God says to them, I say to you, you are gods. But then he rebukes them because they're not doing the things that they should be doing. They were supposed to be judges as God would judge. Therefore, God says, you are like small gods. But he uses the word God, small g there. Therefore, strictly speaking, it isn't provable blasphemy just that you would call someone God or son of God. The Bible did it. If it was just outright blasphemy, then the psalmist blasphemed there. And the psalmist was lying because it's actually God speaking who said, you are gods. So what he's doing here is simply dismantling their argument. Do you understand that? He just quotes from there and says, hey, I'm off the hook. I know the Bible better than you do. Uh, Also, what's going on here is an argument, most likely from the lesser to the greater, right? If human judges, human judges to whom the word of God came at Mount Sinai, God said, this is my law, judge according to this. And because of that, they're called gods because the word of God came to them. How much more the son of God? Is it appropriate for the one who Jesus is saying, the father sent me into the world. The father set me apart. How much more is it appropriate? What should you call that guy if these guys were called God's small g? That's what Jesus is saying. So imagine people came after you with death threats and then you were able to dismantle the false claims. 
They have stones in their hands. They, they, have, they have something with a sheet over it and they take the sheet off of it and it's a guillotine. And you get out of it. Before everyone, no one can say, yeah, they should put you to death. What do you do in that moment? In that moment, I'm saying, oh, how the tables have turned. What do you do? What would be in your heart? What would your words be? Well, Jesus appeals to them. And maybe this morning he's appealing to you too. Let's look at the appeal, verse 37 through 38. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. What this means for us is even if you have hangups around Jesus, look, please look at his works. Look at what he's done. Is this man not of God? He's going to do another work, okay? He's going to do another work next chapter. He's going to raise someone from the dead. Who's able to raise people from the dead, but someone sent from God? And then look at his words, because he's not saying, I'm just a prophet. Verse 38, he says, believe, believe those historical facts. Look at those works. Why? So that you may know and understand that the father is in Jesus and Jesus is in the father. Those two words I love, it says know and it speaks of a one-time past tense thing that happened that you would know, that you would set your heart on this. Your anchor would be right here and unshifting, but that you would also continually understand because as your anchor is in Christ, what do you find? You find that it's an endless well of goodness. You find that I thought I knew that he was God and I knew what that meant, but it's so much deeper and it's so much better because he's so much deeper and he is so much better. He is God and he is the son of God. He is the Christ. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. So what must you do after coming face to face with God in Jesus? What does this demand of you? Let's understand today, we don't say we want to stone Jesus. We just act as if we believe he's God and we do whatever is right in our own eyes. That's what our rebellion looks like. Yeah, I I come to church, but I don't really have the same view of scripture Jesus does. That's why I can disobey it. Yeah, I, I, I believe he's God, but I also dabble in new age spirituality. Yeah, I, I believe he's God, but really that would be asking me to give up a lot if I followed him in his words, literally. But if he's God, we don't get to make those calls. If he's Lord, it means we are not. 
Church, you were meant to know and understand that the Father is in Christ and Christ is in the Father. And so if you come to him, you will lack nothing. You will be forgiven all of your sins. You will have eternal life forever. You will one day fully be in his presence where there is fullness of joy. And look at how he's pursued you. Has he not pursued you just as furiously as he's pursued these Jews? Is it not his grace and mercy that you woke up this morning to hear the word of God and God from his word say, come to me. I am God. There is no other. Forgiveness is free, but it's only through the blood of Christ. It's only turning from your sins and turning to him. Therefore, bow your knee before him. We've seen the trial. We've seen his defense. We've heard the appeal of Christ. And now the verdict. Verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Now, make no mistake, Jesus escaped because he's the judge. Jesus escaped because these people thought we can kill him when we want, if we want, how we want. But once again, Jesus got away. Why? Because his time has not come. Because he is the judge and he rules over the affairs of this universe. In him, the universe holds together. Because he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The verdict is Jesus is the judge. But we might, we might be feeling sad and feeling hopeless. Did these Jews not see? Is it over for them? Is there hope for anyone? Is Jesus true, but just no one's going to believe what's going on here while well, he returns to a scene from the beginning of the gospel of John, verses 40 through 42. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained and many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. It's, it's a literary move at this point in the gospel of John. It closes out this long extended conflict between the Jews and Jesus that ends at near death. And so now John literary in a literary device moves back to a scene from the beginning. Now this really happened in history, but Jesus goes back to where John the Baptist was baptizing people. And it brings John the Baptist to memory. And it also brings the idea of repentance to mind once again, because John the Baptist called people to repent, to turn back, to turn to him, or to turn to the one who he announced. And we see the Jews, they don't believe. And we do wonder if the gospel is failing. Jesus, what's going on? How's your ministry going, man? These people aren't responding. They're not believing in you. 
we might think of ourselves in our relationships with our friends and our family who we share the gospel with. Are we not enough? Am I just failing in what I'm doing? Well, we find a few lessons for ourselves in the person of John. In the prologue of John, of John's gospel, it says, there came a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness concerning the light. And he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And so here, once again, we see the witness of John. There was a man named John, and he wasn't the light himself, but he came to bear witness about the light. Just like John came to bear witness only about Jesus, that's our one responsibility as the saved people of God now. We, we point to him. We speak of him. We tell others about him. We don't meet the needs ourselves, but we tell them about the one who can. And because Christ does live in us, it does compel us to be compassionate and generous people. But at the end of the day, we don't say, it was me who did this. It was I who did this. We say, no, 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 it was Christ in me. We point to Jesus. But what if we feel like a nobody? And what if we feel like, you don't get it though. There's nothing spectacular about me. My speech is plain. My knowledge of the Bible is minimal right now. And I I snap my fingers, but miracles don't happen. I pray that God would do something and I, I don't see him do it yet. What if we feel like a nobody with no signs? The people said, John did no sign. To be a faithful servant of Christ, you don't just have to do signs and wonders for Jesus. When he, when he in his omnipotence blesses us with extraordinary gifts, that's what those are, but they're from him. You don't have to do a great sign to be a witness to Jesus. John never did a sign and Jesus said of him, he was the greatest man who ever lived. John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. So what do people need from you? People need you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like shining a spotlight on Jesus. That is what the Holy Spirit rejoices in doing, is making much of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we need to do. We Look, we don't need to be great. We don't need just great programs or you don't need to have the most charisma. You don't have to produce miracles. We just must live lives so that others can say of us, even though they did no signs, everything they said about Jesus was true. Everything they said about that man was true. And what would happen? Many believed in him there. And many will 
according to God's power, if we are faithful to preach the gospel, they will believe in him here too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You are the Christ and there is no other. You are very God of God. And Lord, we trust that your word will not fail, that your mission will be accomplished through your ordinary people. And Lord, we ask, fill us with your Holy Spirit to make much of you, Jesus, to be obsessed with you, to tell others of the one who forgave us and the one who restored our hearts and the one who came for us and the one who is coming again for us. And Lord, let our hearts not be discouraged. If we have not seen many believe in you here yet, we believe that one day the glory of God shall cover this entire earth. And so Lord, we just ask, make us faithful to you. Would many believe in you here too, not because of us, but because of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We thank you for the way it frees us. Lord Jesus, would you be our all in all now as we sing to you. You are God and there is no other. You being God became man. We are in awe of you. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.